guarding our hearts, guarding our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 from the NIV. Above all else, more than anything else, the Bible says, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. And in the New King James, it says, keep your heart. That word keep means protect your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Remember last week we looked at the great, looked in great detail at the importance of maintaining a peaceful heart. And we, we, we learned that it is Jesus' will because he's bequeathed it to us. He's bequeathed his peace to us. It's in his will that we live, that we live with a peaceful heart. But that in order to live with a peaceful heart, there's certain things we have a part to play. We first need to cast our cares on him, present our requests to him. He says, and the Bible says, and then the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And so as it's our responsibility to purpose in our heart to have a peaceful heart, as so it is for us to have a pure heart. So today we're going to look at having a pure heart. And just to put you at rest there, don't think, oh no, I've got to get into works and all kinds of things now. No, provision has made, been made for us, for us to have pure hearts. It's not that it's unattainable. Jesus paid the full price. He gave his whole life. He held nothing back so that you and I could have pure hearts. And I remember the first day that I was saved. I will never forget that day as long as I live. But that sense of relief, that freedom, which we've been singing about in some of these songs this morning, and most importantly, this purity that I felt on that day, on that day, 15th of September, 1991. All my strivings, all my sin was dealt with in an instant, just like that. Everything that I, that I was carrying into that place was dealt with in, the, in that instant, the minute I said yes to Jesus. He took all my sin. He took all my shame. He took all my guilt upon him. And he left me with this as a pure vessel. And I still remember everything looked brighter. Everything seemed so much better my first day of salvation. And the, and the purpose of all of all that was so that I could have this intimacy, this relationship with God. I could have fellowship with God. This God who I thought was this mean guy. He was really a mean guy. That was my opinion. I didn't know him. But suddenly I, I realized, no, but God is love. And that day when I heard how much God loved me, how much he accepted me, that, that wall of hostility, that enmity, that hostility was removed once and for all. That day, when I heard about his love, his mercy, his acceptance, my heart, my heart became like wax. It just melted before him. And God gave me a heart of flesh instead of this, in place of that heart of stone. And I know everybody here has experienced the same thing. But I've learned over the years that maintaining that pure heart must be one of life's most valuable possessions. It's of more value, of more worth than silver, than gold, than diamonds. 
And the important thing is, like we shared last week, it's, it's what we allow in that will contaminate, that has, the, that has the, the risk of contaminating those pure hearts. Things like the, the Apostle John writes about, he says about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. You know what? The flesh can never be satisfied. It can never be satisfied. It's always gimme, gimme, gimme. My name's Jimmy. And the more you give the flesh, the more it wants. But, ha- so, but we need to have a pure heart. So we're going to look at what it's not. So being pure in heart is not achieved by works. It's, it's not that if I do more, God will love me more. You know, even maybe, you know, sometimes we think I'm going to impress God and I'm going to read three chapters of my Bible this, this, today. It, it, no, it doesn't work like that, okay? Because my agenda, if my agenda's not right, I'm not going to earn brownie points with God. If I start saying, I'm going to pray three times a day, I'm going to read my Bible for six hours a day, it's, if my agenda's not right, um, I'm not going to I'm not going to get anywhere. I'm not going to be able to impress God. So being, having a pure heart is also not about becoming religious and looking like we've been sucking lemons all week. Okay, That's not what be, having a pure heart is about. It also doesn't mean it's, that, it, that it doesn't mean about not having any faults. It doesn't mean that you're perfect in every way. It's not about perfection. Having a pure heart is what happens to us at salvation. That minute when we say yes to Jesus, that's when God takes the unholy and makes it holy. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19 in the NIV, this is what God says. God says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will give them an undivided heart. The psalmist David wrote this in Psalm 86 in the NIV again. He says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. An undivided heart. That means no disloyalty, no hidden agenda, no bad motives. Give me an undivided heart. That same scripture, Psalm 86 in the New King James says, I will walk in your truth. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. Being pure in heart is about being single-hearted towards God. It's when my heart is free from duplicity. That's what it means. So that word undivided, it means not divided, not separated, not broken into parts, not fragmented, fractured or fractioned. And it can happen so easy in today's world. Everything is vying for our attention. You know, if you go, there's these things called cookies in your 
emails, and if you search on any website, boop, all of a sudden, these things start popping up, you know, if you've bought a pair of secretaires for your garden, and next thing you, you're looking for something else, maybe, I don't know, some new, some washing powder or something, next thing, secretaires start pick, popping up. But these things are vying for your attention. So in, our, in this world, our, our hearts can become so fractioned, so fractioned, so divided. So, so I read someone else's interpretation of Psalm, 6, Psalm 86 that said, put me together, Lord, because right now my life is scattered in a thousand directions. And I think that's what happens to us in this world that we live in, especially today. But you remember recently, we were looking about from Second Peter, about adding to our faith. Remember that series, adding to our faith. And the first thing that we said we're going to add to our faith was virtue, moral excellence, integrity. And that word integrity comes from the word integer, which means whole, integrated. So what if we were to include God into every area of our lives? If we were to create a pie graph of our lives and sort of segment it, I think generally, generally, most of our lives could fall into a bit of a pie which will consist of an area there for working, and there's an area there for sleeping, and there's an area there for eating and exercising, maybe, one or two of us, yes, socializing, and then there's an area there for worshiping. So it's very, our lives have become very segmented. But if we are living an integrated life, we should be able to incorporate God into every area, into every section. So even if my life is scattered in a thousand directions, I still want to involve God in every part. When I go to work, when I go to school, I still want to do things God's way. So what can we do? What can we do? to have this pure heart? Well, the good news is nothing, okay? We in ourselves can't do anything. There are not three steps to having a pure heart because the only thing that can cause us to have a pure heart is an encounter with God. It's the only thing. It, an encounter with God is what causes purity in us. And we see in the Old Testament an encounter with God is what changed a man called Jacob. A man called Jacob. And we're going to look at the reference that Jesus made in John's Gospel about Jacob. John chapter 1, verses 43 to 47. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, here's our guy, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's quite interesting that Philip says, We have found him, but actually if you go back a verse or two, it says Jesus found Philip, actually. But anyway, and, he, and also he speaks of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So whenever you see Jesus of Nazareth, he's referring to Jesus in his humanity. 
Jesus was not the son of Joseph, Jesus was the son of God. Just a little minor correction there on Philip's doctrine, but then I digress. Verse 46, and Nathanael says these words, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So this guy's skeptical, Nathanael, he's skeptical. Because at that time, Nazareth was just this obscure little town. It had nothing going for it. There was nothing glamorous about it at all. I think of Waterlooville Town Centre when I think of Nazareth. I think it's not glamorous. You know, if you're looking for glam, it's not, this is not the place. Not yet. God is at work in Waterlooville. But Nazareth is just a small, off-the-beaten-path, isolated village. And so Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of this place? It's like middle of nowhere. And Philip says to him, come and see. So even though Nathaniel was skeptical, he still agreed and he, he accompanied um, Philip. He was intrigued and he wanted to meet this Jesus. And in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. An Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Some versions say, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. No guile. So who is a, what is a person without guile? A person without guile is a person of innocence of honest intent, pure motives. And that's what God saw in Nathaniel, an honest man with no hidden agenda. So on the opposite scale though, a person with guile is someone who is cunning, deceitful, someone who uses dishonest methods to achieve their goals. They're duplicitous. There's a doubleness about them. You know, in James chapter 4, we're not going to go there, but there's a really powerful scripture. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to the church. He writes to, he writes to the church in a quite strong terms. And he says, he calls them a bunch of sinners. And we're not going to do that here today because we're not sinners, we're saints, okay? But he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And the way that we do this is through humility. James chapter 4, he says, God resists the proud, the double-minded man. God resists him, but he gives grace to the humble. An undivided heart is a humble heart, one which seeks God's ways, one that seeks God's ways. Is what I'm saying, is what I'm doing pleasing and acceptable to God? It's about having that sincere, undivided heart before God and man. Pride divides. Pride in the heart divides. Humility unites. And I think that's so key this church. Humility is what unites the church. But Jesus saw the lack of guile in Nathaniel. He was an honest man with no hidden agenda. And in fact, what Jesus was implying was, so he was saying about Nathaniel, he said, behold, an Israelite 
in whom there is no Jacob, no deceit, no guile. He's referring him back to Jacob. So if you go back to that, to, to Genesis 27, we're not going to go there, but I'll suggest this week, take some time. This is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Go and read Genesis 27 onwards. And that word deceit or guile is the word that is used to describe Jacob before his change of heart. The name Jacob, what that was his name, before he wrestled with God, before he had that life-transforming moment, his name meant deceiver, supplanter, a usurper, a heel grabber. I mean, Jacob was, was one of a twin. There were two of them. There was Jacob and Esau. And Esau was on his way out of the birth canal. And Jacob was trying to grab his heel. So he, they called him Jacob, heel grabber. You're a heel grabber, Jacob. And I think in modern day vernacular, we could change that slightly and we can call him a crab in a bucket. A crab in a bucket. Like, what on earth are you talking about? A crab in a bucket. You know what? If you put one crab in a bucket, the crab will get out. If you put many crabs in a bucket, none of them will get out because they're all pulling each other down, trying to get out, and in the process, none of them get out. And this is what Jacob was like. He would rather say, me first, Esau, you wait, I want to come out first. He was that heel grabber. And this Jacob, this deceiver, this supplanter, he'd robbed his brother Esau of his birthright, of his inheritance, multiple times, twice. He, 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 he robbed his own brother by deception. And as a result, as they grew up, Esau wanted to kill his brother um, Jacob. So Jacob left home and goes, went to live with a, a relative called Laban, which was miles away. And Laban had two daughters. He had a daughter called Rachel and a daughter called Leah, not Lee, Leah. And Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. But what happened was Laban tricked him and he landed up marrying Leah. So Jacob, the deceiver, the supplanter, was himself deceived. And you know, talking about sowing and reaping early on during the, during the, during the time of worship, you know, what we sow, we will reap. The principles of God exist. Whether you believe in them or not, they do exist. And so, anyway, so Jacob was living with Laban and he was married. He married Rachel and Leah. He married Leah first, then he married Rachel. He landed up having these 12 sons. And after 20 years of living with Laban, there was animosity between him, between Jacob and Laban. And God told J Jacob, you need to go back to your father's house. So Jacob did that. He started returning to his father's house in Beersheba. And um, so Jacob was on his way back to go to his father's house. He had his father-in-law on one side, and yet his brother Esau on the other side, wanting to kill him. So what Jacob did was he sent his, his wives, his children, the, his, his livestock. He was an extremely wealthy man. He sent them off in caravans before him so that if they, if they came across Esau, it would be like a, like a ploy, like a, um, a bit of an enticement 
for them to appease Esau and it would give him some breathing space. It would pacify Esau. So eventually Jacob was in this wilderness alone, facing sure death. His brother Esau on one side, Laban on the other, emptied of all his worldly possessions and he basically came to the end of himself. He was completely on his own. He was completely alone. And then the Bible says that a man wrestled with God. And that man is a capital M. It's, it was Jesus himself wrestled with him until the break of day. They were wrestling. Jacob wrestled with God all night until he was exhausted and he couldn't wrestle any longer. He reached the end of himself and all he could do, I don't know if you've seen these wrestling matches, they just start clinging to one another eventually when they run out of steam. But Jacob just clung on to God and at that point God touched his hip, his hip and said these words that you shall no longer be called Jacob, you shall no longer be called supplanter, deceiver, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And that's what the word Israel means, struggled, wrestled with God. So Jacob not only had a name change, he went from Jacob to Israel, but he had a heart change. It was a life-defining moment. He surrendered to the truth of who God was and who he was. It wasn't a false surrender. It wasn't just like, okay, I'll back off just to get you off my back. But it was, it, was a, it was a surrender done in truth. You know, sometimes when we do things wrong and we get found out by God, you know, it's like God didn't know about my sin until I repented. No, God was there all along. And we, I think we so, so often feel so bad, so feel so guilty when we get found out. But this is... But you know what? God desires truth in the inward parts. He knows what's going on in the inside of us, hey? And so this is what happened to Jacob. He surrendered. It was a total surrender. He was faced with truth. And when God touched his hip, it changed his walk. And that's what's so important. When we surrender to God, our undivided hearts will change our walk in all aspects of our lives, not just on a Sunday, not just in that little compartment or whenever we wedge God in, but in all areas of our lives, whether it's at school, whether it's at the gym, whether it's at the shops, whether it's at work. And the place where, where um, Jacob experienced this divine encounter with God, he named it Peniel, and that word peniel means I have seen God face to face. I have seen God face to face. I tell you what, some time ago, we haven't done it for a, a while, was we experienced some, some stuff called contemplative prayer. And we need to do it. <laughs> we, need to do, we need to go back to some of these old um, disciplines. Contemplative prayer is when you just get quiet before God and you just surrender to God and you just sense God's stare. 
you sense God's gaze upon you. It's powerful. It's powerful. We can, we can have our own peniel. We can see God face to face and have that life-transforming moment. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God. In other words, blessed are the undivided those with an undivided heart, those with a whole heart, for they will see God. They will see God and they will be seen by God. Jacob saw God and was seen by God. Let's allow ourselves to be seen by God. The psalmist David, again, he says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me and know my heart. What does that mean for us? It means help me to understand my own heart. Help me to understand my own heart. I don't want any hidden agendas. I don't want any selfish ambitions. If my agenda is not right, show me and help me. Sometimes we need help. Because we're oblivious to our own blind spots. We don't see, it's like logs and splinters. The Bible says, you know, look at the log in your own eye before you're looking at the, look at the, 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 the splinter in your brother's eye. Or is it the other way around? It's the right way around. But it's about, show me my blind spots. Um, and so it can be a little painful at times, but it's for our good. Search me, O God, know my heart. Reveal things in my heart, Lord God. Any hidden agenda, any selfish ambition, any blind spots that I might be oblivious to what I'm actually doing. You know, if we call to live by, live by grace in this new dispensation, we're living in a dispensation of grace. We are not living under law. Grace is a higher standard than living by law. Living by grace is so freeing, but it's about living naked and vulnerable before God. That's what it's about. He's giving us this freedom. You're not, you, we're not dictated to by these rules, by these laws. He's saying the responsibility is on you and on me. The onus is on you and on me. Law is about what you do. Grace is about who you are and who you're becoming. That's the difference between law and grace. And we think of David, the psalmist David, who, remember, he committed adultery. Then he committed murder. My word, it doesn't get worse. But he's called a man after God's own heart. How can that be? Well, God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't say, well, it wasn't, it wasn't sin. No, it was sin. Adultery is adultery. Murder is murder. But it was David's heart before God that gave him that name, a man after God's own heart. It was David's heart of repentance before God. David had Bathsheba's husband killed. And can you imagine what Bathsheba must have gone through? First of all, she commits adultery with this guy, and then that guy goes and has her husband killed. The trauma 
of, of losing her husband. But David recognized that the sin that he committed wasn't so much against Bathsheba and Uriah, but it was against God. The sin that we, we, that we, that we have in that, that secret agenda of our heart is against God, not against man. In Psalm 51, verse 4, David says, the psalm of repentance, it's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And he says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Done this evil. It, God sees. He sees and he knows. And, but then he goes on and he says in Psalm 51, verse 10, he says, creating me a pure heart. Creating me, God, that undivided heart. David was far from perfect. He was far from perfect, but his heart was undivided before God. So the pure heart, our pure hearts, it's marked by transparency and an uncompromising desire to please God in all things. Is what I'm doing in secret okay before God? Is what I'm thinking about, is what I'm speaking about okay before God? How transparent can we be? It's more than this external purity of behavior. It's, it's, it's got nothing to do with the external purity of behavior. It's about the internal purity of our souls. It's about cleaning the inside of that cup. A pure heart, an undivided heart, has no guile. It has no deceit. It has no hidden agenda, no hidden motives, but rather a sense of naivety, a, 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 like having an innocence about them. I want to be like that again. You know, I want to be, you know, when I first got saved, I thought everybody loved Jesus in the church. Everybody in the church loved Jesus, 100%. And then I got to talk to people, and I thought, oh, where are you? You're not quite where I thought you'd be. I thought everybody was pure. I was so innocent. I was so naive. In Titus, he says, to the pure, all things are pure. You know, when we have a purity of heart, we have that naivety about us. And that's where I want, that's my heart. That's where I want to get back to. I want to have that naivety. I want to have that innocence. I want to believe the best in every single person. And that's what it is about having that undivided heart.